Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. The odds are most of our data is already available online uh, in the dark web, uh, and it's already out there. It just hasn't been weaponized yet by, for, for anyone, but it is coming, definitely coming. When I see a cybersecurity company advertising the one-stop shop, buy our product and we'll keep you secure, anyone who says that is n- it's nonsense. Cyber criminals live outside the country and they're never arrested. It's like a perfect crime. They can victimize all the Westerners that they want in the UK, in the UK US, and nothing happens to them. Why would they stop? Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of Trium Connects. Now, there's no question as time goes on that we become more and more aware of how important data is to everything, really, as the world becomes more digitalized. Data is everywhere. Nearly our every moment and movements are recorded and stored. Connected devices offer more and more convenience. Our cars exchange information with our phones, which exchange information with our smart houses, and on and on and on. And in fact, without the digital exchange of information, our personal and professional lives have become almost impossible. To be disconnected in any real way is not an option for most. But, and there's a big but here, the more connected we are, the more we are susceptible to cyber criminals. I don't know about you, but I often feel like as the world becomes more and more connected that I'm like one mouse click away from some disastrous decision brought on by my own ignorance or carelessness that will lead to huge problems, the real question becomes just how do we save ourselves and our businesses from these types of mistakes? My guest for this episode to discuss all things cybersecurity is Todd Wade. Todd is a Chief Information Security Officer with over 20 years of experience working with cybersecurity and technology and the author of the recently published book Cybercrime, protecting your business, your family, and yourself. Todd has led the information security departments for multiple financial services and technology organizations. He has worked with leading information security organizations like the Information Security Forum and the Chartered Institute of Information Security. He is also an advisor to several cybersecurity startups, including Cyber Risk Management Group and Scapian. And last, but certainly not least, he is a member of the class of 2009 of the Trium Executive MBA program. Todd is my go-to guy when it comes for answering any questions that I have about cybersecurity. And I found our conversation really enlightening uh, and also thought-provoking about what cybersecurity actually entails. Todd argues in this discussion, and I think he's probably right, that most of our cybersecurity issues aren't down to some sort of technology fix or a technology problem. Rather, cybersecurity depends on having the right kinds of habits, the right frame of mind, the right kind of mindset to understand where these threats are coming from, what they look like, what they feel like when they arrive. And it turns out that it is largely a kind of social issue rather than a technical issue. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Todd Wade. Todd Wade, welcome to Triumph Connects. Hi, Matt. Great to be here. It's uh, wonderful to have you. So we're here to talk about all things cybersecurity and cybercrime. So, um, you know, when I was thinking about the podcast with you, I wanted just to use your expertise to 
try to get clear in my mind kind of what we're talking about when we talk about cybercrime. And, and it seems to me that they can kind of be divided into categories that aren't really that dissimilar to kind of your normal kind of crime. And for me, it helps me make make kind of sense of the scope of what we're talking about here. So I thought it might be good to start with kind of introduction, just getting getting in our head what we're thinking of if, if we think of cybercrime. And it, it seems to me that we can kind of think of them in buckets or categories, something like fraud, blackmail, hostage taking, uh, theft, just plain theft, and maybe vandalism. So does it seem to you to make sense to think of them in those kind of categories? Um, I think it's a good start. Uh, I would go one step further. And if you think about cybercrime, how these would fit in even to simplify it even more, you'd be looking at cyber dependent crimes and cyber enabled crimes. Ah, okay. So tell me what you, what, what flesh that out a little bit more. So cyber enabled crimes is when you think about a computer to a computer attack. So you would think of this as a ransomware attack attacking another computer. Cyber enabled crimes are traditional frauds that have been accelerated due to technology that are now happening online. So you're what you were saying, fraud, all of these categories fall into one of those two buckets that I just discussed. Okay. Well, that uh, that that's super useful. So when we think of fraud, so like this is I'm fooled into kind of voluntarily giving away something of value, which I wouldn't do if I actually knew what you wanted. So you somebody contacts me classically and wants my bank details for proposedly a kind of update of my of my details and what in fact they're wanting is to take my money. Um, and that would be, would that be a cyber enabled or? That would be a, yes, cyber enabled crime. So that, that, that this is definitely falls into under cyber, cyber fraud would fall under. So let, let's, let's think about fraud, for example. I think it's interesting to think about it as cyber enabled um, versus cyber dependent. So fraud, we simply, you know, kind of, I'm fooled into voluntarily giving away some sort of information, something of value that I wouldn't give away if I actually knew what the person wanted. So they're somehow lying to me to get something that they want from me and then taking it. And one, and I think we're all familiar with this type of, you know, uh, fraud, the Nigerian prince and all, all of this stuff. And as you point out in, in your excellent book, these kind of frauds have been going on forever. You know, is this, these are some of the oldest types of crime we have, but it's, it seems interesting to me that, and, and maybe it's even more so with, cyber fraud in some ways, we tend to hold the victim responsible um, for being stupid enough to kind of fall for it. Um, but there seems to be some pretty sophisticated fraud out there that we probably, that's pretty unfair. Um, first of all, do you find it as, as an expert in this field, do you ever get frustrated that the victim is kind of uh, blamed? And do you think in what situations is that fair and which which is it becoming less and less fair as time goes on i think i think it's definitely less fair uh, there's a real there's a lot of studies on this on victim shaming uh and it's incredibly sad to see because this happens to very smart people there's no there's no range here of how uh where you are in the company ceos are falling for for these things you have some very smart people all across different sectors segments falling for cyber crime and falling for particularly cyber fraud. If you look on the business side, uh, you have 25% of business email compromise fraud attacks 
are hidden by the employees. They don't communicate to the company. They fall in victim because they're embarrassed of the reputational risk that they take because they will be thought of as stupid in many cases. Okay. So, so, so what, I mean, we're all familiar with kind of the typical, you know, famous Nigerian prince wants to send you money, et cetera. So what would be a kind of much more sophisticated com- internal company fraud type of attack that, as you said, these very smart people will fall prey to? Can you give us an idea without giving, obviously, a kind of instruction manual, but an idea of, of what types of things will be used? The largest one impacting businesses globally is what I just mentioned, the business email compromise. And this is a this is a fairly wide category, but what it narrows down to is cyber criminals are tricking companies uh, to transfer money to them, companies, employees of companies. So they're pretending either to be a legitimate business transaction, they're pretending to be a legitimate business partner. In many cases, they pretend to be uh, senior executives, the CEO, and they make up business transactions. Uh, the losses are hundreds of thousands to millions for organizations getting caught out in this. So the FBI has great stats, $26 billion in the last year, last two to three years are coming out of the U.S. And 25% of those aren't reported because the person is frightened of being looked at as stupid or their, you know, their reputational effect, right? If they can hide it, if they can hide it, you know what? There's a, there's a very good chance they'll just move on and not report it because the reputational risks are, they are, they're real risk. You know, okay. it's a valid point. Uh, if you've lost a company, a lot of money, do you really want anyone to, to know about that if you can't? Yeah. yeah. So you, but they hide it not only from, I, I guess by hiding it, particularly from the chief information security officer, what happens is it just gets worse, I would guess. Yeah. Not really, not really. Some of these attacks, I'm using some large numbers, but they also range on small uh, hanging fruit too. These these attacks can also happen for thousands of dollars to employees. So there's a wide ranging. And so if they can make it appear like it's a legitimate business transaction in their books, no one knows, they move on, they fell victim, but they just don't need to let anyone know. Okay, I see. And companies increasingly, if, unless they're required to report it, companies won't report it outside the company you you won't know uh any outside if, if they don't if they don't have to report it most companies i suspect will just keep it in, in in-house and they won't let anyone know and there and there's certain types of regulations in different regulatory uh, uh areas where they're forced to report certain types of things and in others in other areas or in the same area different types of crime they aren't forced to report so what what drives that? Why why do we have regulations in some areas and not others to, to force companies when they have a compromise to reveal that compromise? This is a this, this is a new new phenomenon, cybercrime. So I think regulations are catching up to this. So I think you're you're seeing so it, depending like in in the UK, for instance, if there's a data breach, you've been data you've had a data breach, you've lost data, you have to report it within three days to the ICO organization, as an example. Uh but different countries don't have that. Many countries don't have that. The United States is starting to advance, but there's still many areas where there's lapses. They're not required to, depending on the industry that you're in. And would that be a state level or a federal level uh, law in the U.S.? Both. The states are, some states are further ahead, like in California, or have requirements. Uh, many states are behind. Federal, Biden just passed some regulations for 
critical infrastructure, for example, having to report earlier this year. So you're seeing more of a federal mandate and you're definitely seeing more of by industry. The healthcare industry has some, some rigid requirements and the financial sector has some rigid requirements. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I can see that you would have, I mean, the state would have an interest in making sure if individuals entrust their data to some organization and that organization has a data breach, then I as an individual will want to know that so I can take precautions uh, as needed. So I can see that the state has an interest in that. But I guess less of an interest maybe if the victim is only or the or the danger is only to the firm itself. And then and then it's just a reputational effect on the firm. And there the incentive is not to report it, I would guess. And this is where their consumers are the ones who suffer. Okay, how so? They, they, they suffer because? Oftentimes when you hear data breach, they don't say what data has been stolen <laughs> as an example. Uh, the odds are most of our data is already available online. Odds are we already have information uh, online uh, in the dark web. Uh, and it's already out there. It just hasn't been weaponized yet by for for anyone. Or it, but it is coming, definitely coming. Okay, so that's that's a little bit frightening, Todd. So that so so you're. I think what you just said is there are rich seams of our data available in the dark web. Um, just because they haven't been weaponized yet doesn't mean that they won't be. And in fact, they will be, and it's coming. And none of us are safe because it's all out there already. It might be helpful just to kind of stand back and just have a quick look at who the cyber criminals are. I think this might kind of bring this to life. If you look at m many of the organizations now, they are professionally run call centers, like with thousands of people in these mm. countries, professionally run. They run like a call center. They run like uh, any any other business would, except they're running cyber crime, cyber frauds. Yeah. And they're having phenomenal success, phenomenal success. But if I say, I mean, I'm just trying to think. So, um, is it a false sense of security if I say to myself, "Well, I never fall prey to that stuff. This is call center. I don't do any transactions by the telephone anyway. I'm really careful with my data." Are, are you saying that I look if, if with the right tools, I look into the dark net, I could find all I needed to know about Matt to to steal some of his data in a way that would be financially beneficial to the to the thief. I don't think necessarily data is what they're going to So how do they use the data or better yet, how do they compromise your account? See, if they can get access to your bank account, your brokerage account and transfer money out of it, that's that's really interesting to them or get you to voluntarily transfer money to them. OK, which is a big one right now. So one of the one of the big ones happening right now for uh, uh, is the investment fraud online where they have fake exchanges, fake stock brokerages that look just like real ones. And people transfer hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to these knowingly, knowingly. Hmm. They haven't even stolen your data. They don't need to. They've gotten you to do it voluntarily and then they disappear and your money, your money's gone. And there's no recourse for you. But that's different. I mean, Todd, it's different than what you were saying is, is you know, that our, our data is already out. We've already been compromised and it's in the dark web there. And it's just waiting for somebody to buy and use in a weaponized way. Then saying the fraudsters are getting much more sophisticated and um, people, more and more people are falling prey to these frauds. So is it, is it both? Are, I mean, it has has the kind of data already bolted out of the barn, so to speak, and and even if I'm not 
falling prey for any of these frauds, I'm I'm already in a in an endangered position. I think you should assume your data is already out there. And I think that helps you prepare yourself now. What steps can you take now? Make sure you have multi-factor authentication in all of your accounts. Make sure you take steps. Do you have monitoring set up so you can see when anything changes on your credit report? What sort of monitoring? How can you stay one step ahead of this? So if you do see any of your accounts getting accessed or if someone does get your username and password, they won't, it won't do them any good. Okay. Okay. So uh, there's some basic hygienes that you can take to protect yourself. And this is one of the points I make in my, my book. The new technology advances are going so rapidly. None of us are going to be experts in these new tech. It's just happening so fast. But if you understand the methodologies, the background, how they operate, it gives you a better chance of recognizing the attacks, regardless of the technology used to come at you or the new app or new whatever it might be around the corner. Okay. And that's what I think is important. And that applies as much to companies as it does to individuals, then I would assume. Definitely. This book is targeted to executives, but the biggest success I had in teaching executives how to protect their company is make it personal. Teach them how to protect themselves and their family. Those same habits carry over into the workplace. Those same security basics carry over on both individually and, and corporate. And, and once you get into the habits, kind of like locking your door or you know your house when you leave or you're wearing your seatbelt. Once you get in that habit, you, you don't forget it. You'll, you'll carry that over regardless of what, where you're at. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So if let's move on. So, so we have fraud. I think blackmail is kind of pretty obvious. The the next one, I mean, let's think about ransomware or kind of this is just taking a hostage, right? You you get something that you threaten to uh, to destroy. So blackmail, you take something and you threaten to expose unless you give them something they want. And hostages, you take something and threaten to destroy it unless they give you some money. Um, is is this kind of ransomware on data? Is this is this the main danger that businesses have to look after? You have a multi-prong approach here. So the, they're operating now on multiple layers. So what the criminal gangs are doing is they're saying, all right, what gives us the best chance of getting money from the company? So first thing they're going to do once they get access to your system is going to download all your sensitive data. Then they're going to launch a ransomware attack on your systems, okay? And by the time they launch it, they've already done the research to know which systems to take down that'll have maximum impact to your organization. So here, here's this, this is the first step that they do. They say, look, get the ransomware key and pay us the money and we're gone. You know, we'll give you back your data and your ransomware. Most companies are getting wise to this. So they're back, they have backups, they can recover. They don't really need that key. So then they go to the next step okay, we're going to shame you. We're going to release this data to the public, all of it. And we're going to sell it unless you pay us. So now they're going to try this extortion team. They'll do multiple shaming mechanisms on the company to get them to pay. Uh, all, and they ranch up the pressure uh, over time. Okay, so that's interesting. So it's not that uh, traditionally you would have thought, oh, you're, you're, you've frozen all my data, my, my operating system can't work, and in order for me to do business, I'm going to do this, I'm going to pay you, and then as soon as I get my data back, I'm going to protect it. You're saying that companies now protect their data to start, so it's the fact that they've been compromised that they use because it'd be so damaging to know that they've been compromised, then it just switches from kind of 
being a hostage taking situation to a blackmail situation. Because sometimes there's very sensitive employees, just even starting with employee salaries, as an example, Let, letting everyone in the company know everyone's salary or letting all the company, all the personal information, health data for, for your, for, for people. That's, that's pretty sensitive. How often do firms pay this money? And is it, is there any reporting requirements for it? And should there be? I don't think so. I don't think it's a reporting requirement. Uh, I think you report the report the breach. Uh, whether or not you pay the ransom, it comes down. To many companies have to have they rely on their cyber insurance. So cyber insurance will kind of dictate whether they pay. For a long time, cyber insurance companies have been telling companies to pay. It was cheaper to pay than to not pay. Hmm. Uh, from an insurance perspective, this is now being called into question as. Uh, and it's becoming much more complicated uh, for companies. But oftentimes it's better, it's faster for companies to pay the ransom um, than not. And do you think it should be, should companies be forced to say when they pay a ransom? Do you think, I mean, I know that they, they aren't particularly now, but if you were, if Todd, you were the cybersecurity czar of the world and you could decide you know the, the rules that would govern this stuff would you say thou must publish all payments you make to criminals in these kind of situations i i think it's a case-by-case basis i think every every company is going to be different i think every depending on what they have i think everyone's situation is different uh, well, let me let me push you a little bit because I think this is interesting. I'm not saying that they should say what was stolen. I'm not saying what they should say what they paid for. Mm-hmm. But it would seem to me that it would be there's a public interest perhaps because if you've played if you've paid some of this, it means maybe that you aren't as secure as you ought to be. And so maybe it's in a public interest to know who has paid the ransoms or or not. Not not that I I don't want to know what's stolen, but I just want to say last year company XYZ paid 1.78 million dollars to various people that we don't know who they are, but they were in ransom attacks. That's a good point. I I would come up when I look at this, I think it's I I would be I would think it's more important to know that there's been a ransom attack in the first place. Because I think that says a lot about their security posture if they've had a ransomware attack. All right. I think that's a, that highlights that there's definitely some challenge that they've had and the cyber criminals have gotten in somehow. Um, and paying the ransom, you can look at an energy pipeline. Now, every minute counts. You look yep. at a hospital, every minute counts in a hospital. So sooner you have that decryption key, you know what? It's it's a, it's a Maybe it's not necessarily a financial reasoning here. Com- completely understand. Again, I wouldn't be necessarily making a judgment about whether you should or should not pay that ransom. Mm-hmm. I would just be saying, particularly if it's a public company, we should know that a ransom was paid and how much. Um, yeah, and point. and uh, in that case, you're right. It's good to know that there was a breach, but in a sense, we could see how bad that breach was by how much they paid in order to do it. And maybe that would be a better risk. It would it would propel, particularly this public company, it would propel them to have a better risk management strategy or or have a, a better risk profile or uh, approach. That's what I'm thinking. But I, you're you you tell me you're the expert here. I think when companies go experience a data breach and they experience this a very serious one, their security budget all of a sudden improves. 
They've got more money to spend. I've known a lot of CISOs, a lot of security experts that have really struggled to get the company to take security seriously. And, and it takes an event like this before they have a wake-up call. And it's really sad that it takes, it takes an event like this yeah. for them to, to actually go, oh, wait a second, maybe we have a larger risk here than, than we realized. So that would be really interesting to look at the public books to see what happens to the budgets of the cybersecurity units. In, and if you see a big rise, you know, hmm, something something's happened here. A, a, absolutely a big rise. I know that the chief discussion in the organizations I work with, if their competitor has been had a ransomware attack, that's one thing we have to discuss with the board. Uh, right. This is a big question. How prepared are we? Because when it comes down to the, the real trend in security, isn't necessarily stopping the criminals. It's about our resiliency. Yeah. We're all moving towards how resilient are we to withstand an attack uh, okay. because they're happening at such a frequent pace. Well, that leads me to the kind of the next question. And we just, it elaborates, maybe we can elaborate it on a little bit. You know, you, you have just absolutely amazing experience with lots of different firms. So what do you, what do you think in your experience as an expert that's brought in to look at the cybersecurity, you're an advisor and a consultant, what do most firms get wrong? What are they unprepared for, unaware of? What, what, what is it? What's the biggest mistake? There's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are in their own businesses. They, they, many of them have their own budget lines to try to, to handle these kind of things. What advice would you give them? You know, look, a lot of people get this wrong. What is that? I think the one thing I think most common among firms is people still think of cybersecurity as a technology issue. And it is not, it is, it's, you need to think of it as more of an information security, which is a company-wide issue. And when you look at, you know, projects I lead as a CISO, it's how do we reduce the probability of an information uh, loss event company-wide? And this isn't technology-wise. It's part of what we, part of, part of the thing. So people think of this mindset that, it, that your security is part of the technology. It's, it's not. It needs to be thought of as a separate entity. It needs to be thought of, our, this is a company-wide initiative. This is a company-wide project. And you need to think about your information security risk this way. And this is why the SEC is going to require a cyber leader on boards for public companies this year. Okay. Because it can't be thrown down in the, into the tech department. This is, this is a mindset issue. And this is what you're seeing. The U.S. is further ahead than the U.K. But you have seen a distinct shift of, okay, we need a separate security function that isn't in the technology department. And where are we in the EU? Do, do, do you have a feeling for that? It's slow moving, but as more companies get attacked, you're, you're seeing distinct shifts here. You are seeing a gradual shift where you just don't have a choice. You don't have a choice in terms of addressing this because the risks are so great. And you, you see some industries like the financial sectors uh, taking the lead on this. They're taking the lead and you're gonna see critical infrastructure start to take a lead on this. Because you need to understand your information security risk from that lens. And this lens is not into your tech stack. And this is, I think, probably the one thing companies, I think, um, older companies are struggling with. So they put it into the tech bucket rather than thinking of it as something else. So, right. so I think this is related. One of the things that when I talk about cybersecurity with the firms, and again, not anything like the depth of the conversations you have, but one of the things that they're endlessly kind of frustrated by is the number of cybersecurity consultants programs that are out there that are essentially 
I don't know, fraudulent is too strong, but uh, not uh, somehow taking advantage of people's ignorance of how this works. Do you, do you think this is a problem in the industry? I think it's a massive problem, Matt. It, and they're not wrong on pitching this. I, I see it is really, when I see a cybersecurity company advertising the one-stop shop, buy our product and we'll keep you secure. Mm. Anyone who says that is it's nonsense. As an example, a financial institution, a large one, will have over 80 to 100 different cybersecurity vendors. 80 to 100 different cybersecurity vendors they purchase product from because that is how intense the 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 sector is. Now, I'm not saying every company has to do that, but this, you know, because these large banks have, you know, security departments of, you know, two to 3,000, 5,000 people. But you have different segments of security you need to address and for depending on the size of your organization you want to focus those and that where you spend your budget on your core risk what are your most important risk you want to address and this is one of the things i help with in terms of you know whether it's a board helping companies understand this because they want a sounding board because mm. oftentimes they're worried executives are worried are they being sold a gold-plated solution yeah and they need they need outside help to all right we need we we need like a balancing stick here. We we need to make sure that you know, what what we're being asked to do and what we're being sold actually does uh, reduce our risk. Well, and that probably goes back to the misunderstanding or misperception about what they're doing. It's not about getting, you know, that uh, antiviral software that's going to make everything go away. That it's a mindset about security that and not just a gold plate that that somehow if I download this kind of protection into my system, everything's going to be fine. Absolutely. It's, it's a journey. Um, you will never have enough money to buy all the security products you need. So you have to understand where to, where to invest your money in yeah. to get the most impact. And let, and let me, I mean, as things have changed, one of the things that have changed a lot since COVID started is obviously we have much more homeworking. And I'm guessing that this must have introduced significant challenges to firms on cybersecurity terms, or, or am I overestimating what that might have done? I think you had a couple of challenges. Um, Infrastructure-wise, many firms were, were caught out. They weren't prepared for this from an infrastructure side. But on the other flip end is you see people are alone in their houses. And so if they're getting attacked with a cyber fraud uh, attack, usually you can you know, ask someone next door to you in, in your, 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 your office, hey, does this look right? But mm. you're alone and you're actually spending more time alone. And that makes you more susceptible to these attacks. I see. So it's just the kind of informal connections when you're in person that you can, as you said, go to the next cubicle and say, have you seen this or does this look right? And that and that's just impossible in the home setting or much more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is more difficult. And it's definitely, uh, there, there's definitely, you saw an increase, I think, definitely an increase on certain types of attacks uh, mm. from home users. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I would have thought of it as that you're doing you're doing more sensitive stuff outside of the office and maybe the system isn't closed and it's open and you're getting virtual connections. But it's interesting that, again, I, I automatically went to the tech part. And what you're telling me, what's really interesting is not the tech part, it's that people lack the social environment to to kind of double check whether things seem right. I'll tell you, there's a well-known stat here for cybersecurity. Um Criminals are going to take the easy route. Cyber criminals are going to take the easy route. And over and over again, it is people not patching their systems, people not changing their passwords. It is basic hygiene stuff that companies get caught out on. 
over and over again. And this isn't high tech. It's just not high tech because they don't need to be. Uh, they don't need to be high tech uh, and invest a lot of time. So they're going to go to the low hanging fruit. And there's just so much of it out there. They, they don't, you know, it's, it's like, you know, shooting fish in a bucket or something it's yeah. just that easy so if if we're currently in a shooting fish in a in a bucket as you say one thing that i think must give cybersecurity experts headaches or kind of nightmares perhaps is is when we move towards a kind of internet of all things so this transformation between all things being connected to all things and it seems to me the more and more the complex networks are with multiply connected devices all over the place, being able to talk to each other, it must be that it, this exposes kind of as, as the, as the nodes increase in that network, it must have exponentially increased the kind of weak points at a system or is, or, or again, am I falling prey to thinking this is a tech issue? We haven't seen anything yet on the attacks, Matt. IOT is a massive, massive risk. It's a, across the board, everyone is very, very concerned because IoT is a weak point in security, a very, very big weak point, uh, which I can, I can elaborate on the weak points. But problem with IoT is security often isn't built into the IoT. Hmm. Uh, and back to the attacks, right now, one of the reasons they're so successful is people are getting attacked in new ways that they haven't seen before. They get attacked via Facebook, email, or, or text messages, or even calls. The, wait till they start getting attacked by their smart fridge yeah. or or their or their car or i, I mean just just imagine that because they're not you're just not prepared for it yeah you know so my car i plug in i have electric car so i plug it in it's also connected automatically to my phone when i get in the car has its own interface system it has its password but i have it Again, you you have to connect the passwords together to make that seamless. It's a great thing. It's very convenient and everything. But that's as you said, this is just the start. If if things like my toaster and my uh, my fridge and my microwave are all connected in the same sort of way, it it must be it must be so much harder to to kind of figure out where that weakness is going to be and where it's where the attacks are going to come from really hard there's no standards and regulations for this they're working on some better regulations but you have examples like samsung tvs their video cameras in their tvs getting hacked and people are able to see everything you do in your house as yeah. an example you know camcorder is getting hacked uh you name it getting hacked and then yeah. everyone having having be able to watch you in your house how creepy is that very creepy well but in some ways you don't have to you just have to turn on your personal assistant and you're being listened to the whole time so <laughs> um, anyway different issue so i've i've seen some interesting stuff todd where um ai uh, uh might have some solutions for these super complex networks so they what they try to do is look at the flow of information across these networks and see where the flows start to be uh uh, unusual, where there's deviations from the normal flow that we would expect. And the idea is that AI would be able to monitor the networks and send you some sort of warning when there's some sort of un, uh, perturbation or unusual combination of information in the network. Have, have you seen anything like this? And do you hold out any hope for this? There are some great security products working in AI right now. There, there are some really cool innovation where they're picking up uh, malicious 
uh, behavior, as an example, anomalies. What's out, what that's out of place, you know, and they're they're picking it up on your on your system. So there's a lot of activity, a lot of great innovation uh, happening where they're detecting this, so you don't see the attacks or they stop the attacks before they get into your organization. You should definitely explore that. But there's also the word AI. It's the common joke among cybersecurity professionals. Every security company uses AI. Every security company is a master of AI. And and you and you, when you drill down to it, a lot of times, no, you're not doing authentic. You're just throwing that term out there. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be careful with that uh, term and really see if it's a firm that you're going to hire. What, what do they do? And how, how yeah. do they prove it and such? Yeah, I must say, uh, for those listeners uh, who are Trium alumni or Trium students, I don't know how many term projects that I have read where part of it is we're going to have an AI enabled this or an AI enabled that. And <laughs> and I always just like my head starts to explode. And I was just going to say like, okay, so how exactly is AI going to work here? Where are the, uh, you know, massive data inputs going to come in order to, to, uh, to push uh, online uh, uh, to push kind of learning uh, anyway, it's, it's a pet peeve, so I'll I'll move on. <laughs> All right. But I, I get this idea that every every vendor is having AI on it, and 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 you have to be really really uh, careful there. Oh. Another another thing that might be a challenge coming up, and um, is if we look at the metaverse, and if if uh, people who are right that the metaverse is going to explode, and we're going to spend more and more time in this kind of completely immersive uh, uh, world. Um, it must also present some tricky problems for cybersecurity there because surely in the the idea of the metaverse is we might be doing things that we wouldn't normally do in the in the quote real world. So is there is there much stuff going on now in your industry about what special challenges the metaverse will throw up and and are we are we going to be prepared for this? I mean, will you see little for example, you know, avatars walking around with their cybersecurity uh, armor on so you can actually see their armor and it can't be pierced you know i'm just trying to i'm just trying to think out there what what's it, what's this going to look like so, about 90% of attacks happen through social engineering they don't happen through technical attacks and this is where humans are getting hacked so if you think about the um cyber fraud as an example we would it's social engineering techniques are used to manipulate people not systems and this was the point I was making is um, when we think about new technologies, the metaverse or other new technologies, it's the, it doesn't matter the technology being used, metaverse, they're still going to go after the social element. They're going to try to manipulate you in the metaverse through a series of manipulation techniques. So those are not security products, so to speak. You have to understand recognize these products when they and recognize these approaches when you see them and become aware when they happen to you yeah i mean i i absolutely i, I could just think that if we th to the extent that the metaverse is going to be interesting and we're walking around some immersive environment and as you said it will be social manipulation so you know you walk by a virtual casino and or you walk by a betting shop or you walk by a uh, dance club or you walk by you know whatever where there's going to be any kinds of transactions uh or any interaction between you and your avatar 
um, one would think, and I, and I was only being kind of half facetious, that maybe we'll only interact with somebody in the metaverse if they have some sort of, you know, the, 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 their, uh, their exterior uh, kind of, I don't know, like armor is of a significant quality and that I check it up, check it out before I kind of even talk to them. I, I, who knows? I'm just guessing that to the extent that it's social manipulation and that's a real weak link, then I would guess once we enter into a place where it's not just, you know, we have multiple channels towards creating a socially uh, manipulative environment, then that that problem will have to become more serious, I would guess. I think if you step back, it's, it's even take it simpler. However, they can communicate with you is fair game. Any communication method. So if they communicate you via TikTok or Metaverse or whatever avenue you're using, and businesses are are constantly coming up with new avenues of communication. You know, they're going to the Metaverse and communicating through the Metaverse, and this opens up a whole wide wide range of ways that cyber criminals can use this because they're not going to be expecting an attack on in the Metaverse. You're just not expecting it. And so people, there's some studies on this too, people are more trusting online, especially younger people, which makes them more susceptible to the approaches from, from cyber yeah. criminals. And, and it gets it back to the interconnectedness. Okay, so your kids, let's say your 12-year-old's in the metaverse, he's slightly more... Um, uh, trusting, let's say somehow he gets hacked in some ways, it then is embedded on his system. That's one thing. And all kinds of bad things can happen. He can be bullied, he can be blackmailed, et cetera, et cetera. But it goes up a notch when his his iPad or his Xbox or whatever it might be is also tied in with the television, which is tied in with my machine and my computer, which is tied in with my car, which is tied in with all across these internet of things. And so one point of entry could give you access to so many more things than it could have in the past. Is it, it, it I mean, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely getting that right. You're you're only as good as your weakest link in your home network. And uh, the more the the larger and more extensive your network, the more opportunities there are for weak links. And yes. I guess the same goes for individuals as as businesses. So so I mean, if we think about this, Todd, there's always a, a kind of arms race between kind of cyber cyber criminals and and defenses against them. Um, is the equilibria? Is the defense always kind of in a weak position, do you think? Is it always just reactive? Can we be in a situation where where we're, we really can kind of create a, a kind of general antibody that we can, you know, antibiotic that we can take that to not only protect us against the current kind of risk, but future risks? I guess, again, I'm, I'm falling prey to the same uh, fallacy that we've already talked about. I'm looking for a technical solution and and maybe there's no such thing because it's social. It's social. We are a long ways away, Matt. Uh, I, I see this only getting worse. You have a situation where most cyber criminals live outside the country and they're never arrested. It's like a perfect crime. They can victimize all the Westerners that they want in the UK, in the UK US, and nothing happens to them. Why would they stop? So it comes down to the technology and you look at the internet platforms, Google, Facebook, any of these, and a lot of these are the key reason why the attacks are so bad because of their policies on there and, and they're being used as attack vectors for criminals 
Um, and so technologists are going to make this worse because it's just the, the greater, the more technology advances there are, the greater our attack surface, the greater the number of ways cyber criminals can attack you. It just increases. And so now, how are we going to prepare? And this is why resiliency is coming across. And this is why, okay, you have to assume you're going to be attacked. If you assume this, what steps can you take now, thinking in that mindset? Don't think about preventing it. Think about, all right, I'm already, if I'm already going to be attacked, how, how am I going to survive that? Okay. So I, I'm going to... I'm going to try to pull. It's all fascinating. I'm just going to try to pull up one more level of uh, of kind of macroness, if that's a word. So we've been talking about kind of individual. We talk about the firm and the company and and some mistakes there. I want to talk a little bit about uh, state actors for a sec. So um, again, these are I know these are different things. So state run cyber offensive categories uh, are are a kind of uh, craft. A tool of of some sort of aggression, tool of war by other means, um, and there must be some overlap with these type of approaches and with what cyber criminals use, particularly you know taking over operating systems, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder, you know, I was thinking the other day, why don't we see more countries launching debilitating cyber attacks? And I wondered whether we're I was thinking back, okay, so one of the things that kept us from being annihilated by nuclear weapons was that the theory went that because nuclear weapons were so bad that if I attacked you, you would attack me and the whole world would blow up. And and that and and so this mutual assured destruction, as long as we both knew that there was no way for us to survive an attack by the other, none, nobody would attack each other. So the ultimate uh, a kind of protector of the peace were these giant uh, uh, nuclear weapons, you know, and, and it's not by accident. Some of them are called the peacemakers or the peacekeepers or things like this. And the idea is there's this kind of balance of terror. Nobody would dare do it because the consequences for themselves would be so great that there's no such thing as winning then. I wonder if we're kind of, are, might we, and this, I don't know if this is a pessimistic or an optimistic view, but might we be coming into a kind of situation where we're kind of in a balance of terror when it comes to, for, to state-run kind of offensive weapons? We know, for example, if we launched right now with the conflict between uh, Europe and the U.S. and, let's say, Russia over the war in Ukraine, if if the U.S. were to launch something on Russia or Russia was to launch something against the U.S. or Europe, we know that that would kind of cross a line into a situation where the destruction could get so far out of hand so quickly that any of your kind of tactical advantages you get from launching that attack would be would be kind of completely erased. Do you see a kind of emergence of a balance of terror when it comes to um, uh, offensive uh, attacks by state actors? I think we maybe need to divide that because they are definitely scaling up their cyber criminal attacks, uh, North Korea, Iran, in ways of stealing money. This is, and state secrets, you know, on the China side, this is happening and it's happening and it's increasing. So companies, you look at, there was a recent uh, Bangladesh hash uh, attack for, you know, $70 million a couple of years ago. Um, uh, they're not stopping and there's no reason why they, they would stop. Okay. So um, this is interesting. So that what you're saying is if I get this right, so it may be that 
we 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 shouldn't really think about state actors kind of launching some sort of offensive attack against other states but what they do is they they do it from an arms link so they support nurture allow tolerate fund give uh intellectual property to other units that they have kind of a, a plausible deniability for and let them do the work is that, is that what's happening uh, no, I I think there's just government units. I don't think there's a, there are li literally government uh, functions in North Korea. Then uh, this is their sole job. Sole job is to uh, hack and to to find ways to steal money and data. Uh, you know, um, China tends to be more uh, regarding intellectual property, um, but this is just this is happening now in scale, uh, and companies are having to deal with it now. Yeah. And, and and prepare for it on the cyber side. So so sends me to a, a a different question, and and we're getting towards the end of our time, and I want to be uh, conscious of the fact that you've been very generous with your time. So here's the question: This is a hypothetical, and it's one of these tricky questions that um, a chief information security officer might have to approach. So. Let us say that you have your multinational company. You have people working for you that are from lots of different countries across the globe. Some of these people work in countries where the state could put pressure on them directly or through their family for them to compromise the security system of the firm that they're working for. Okay. And I we don't need to you fill in the blank of the country that you want to be the uh, the bad guy here. Okay. Um, now, it may be that letting that person have access to that kind of system is irresponsible because it exposes them to the kind of pressure and their family, the pressure puts them in an impossible position. But if we say as a company, I'm not going to let anybody from country X have any access to my uh, sensitive systems, then that is co completely kind of discriminatory because it's not the person or where they're from. So if you were a chief information security officer, CISO, I, I always get these wrong, CISO. If you were a CISO, and you were uh, uh, faced with this. What what would you what would you recommend? What would you recommend? Would you would you say I'm sorry? I'm not I'm not out of for your good. I'm not going to give you access to this data or these systems. And would you be frightened then of legal action? I mean, how how do you get around that problem? This is a fairly common scenario for international companies where you have to restrict uh, who accesses your data inside and outside the country. So there are situations, let's take India as an example, you can't have anyone outside of India accessing the data in India. So this is so you have you have segmentations built into your technology stack if you're going to operate in some countries, because you cannot allow either your data into those countries or out of those countries. And then you have to design your system. So if you're working in that country, you can't access certain other countries' regions. So this is going to be, you have to think through these scenarios. And then you have to put in the technology solutions to have this as a rigid standard. Uh, so this is something that's happening that you have to be aware of depending on the country. And this is a regulatory, most of the time, regulatory. Let me just push back on that a little bit, Todd, because if I'm a truly global company, and let's say that I um, 
one of the one of the pitches I give to my clients is that look, I have the scale and the scope across lots of different countries. You can deal with me, and we can help you in all of these different markets. And at the same time, I have a, a, I have a tech solution that doesn't allow stacks in one country to, to to have any information coming out to another. I mean, doesn't it completely undermine the idea that you would have a firm that would take advantage of its scale across countries if you if you somehow artificially stop the flow of information from one country to another? I mean, just look at the U.S. and EU. There's data related issues of data transfer back and forth. You look at, uh, there's just some types of data you're going to keep in those countries. I understand. Yeah. So you keep in the country. So, yeah. Okay. So, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I guess I'm thinking about it. You, is it, is it a perfect solution to say that you won't allow data between geographic areas? Would that stop somebody, let's say, person of, uh, we'll, we'll use North Korea because I don't think anybody will be offended mm -hmm. if we say North Korea is doing this. So let's say a North Korean, you work with North Korean, you, the, the person has escaped the country a long time ago, he, but they still have family in the country and he's, he or she is working for you in your firm in a, in a certain country. Do you just say to that person, I'm sorry, you can't have access to any of these passcodes to get any of this data because you could it is too likely that you will be pressured to give up that information. Well, common thing we think about in security is least privilege. You want to give the person the least amount of privilege for them to do their job. And I think this would require that same scenario with them is what's the least amount of privilege that they need to do their job. Because mm -hmm. if you can't give them what they need to do their job, then why, why have them? They have to be able to do their job. Uh, and I would think if you would think of like, like that, if you can't give them the access they need to do their job, then they shouldn't be in that job. Yeah. And you have to have a certain amount of trust there uh, or yeah, they don't have them there in that role. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's, 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 it's one of these difficult problems because you could say that I'm, it would be irresponsible to give them access because that exposes their family. It also be say that it's, it's a bit discriminatory and uh, racist if you say, I'm sorry, you're from this part of the world, therefore I'm, you can't have any of these jobs. We can only have people from the US have these jobs or someplace where the government can't put pressure on you to expose these secrets or whatever it might be. I, don't, I, I, I think it's just one of these super tricky problems. No, that's a fair point. I think a lot, a lot of situations people need security clearances so they can pass this on to security clearance. Can yeah. you get a security clearance or not? Uh, and if you do, then, then you're good. But then that puts them through other rigorous checks outside of your company onto another, you know, onto the government to do the security checks. Or or even internal security checks in a firm that has particularly sensitive data that they might be dealing with, I would guess. Every firm should do uh, background checks on their staff. Uh, I know financial firms are very good at this, but many other industries are not. They're not good at really, all right, what could compromise who you're hiring? You know, what kind of information do they have? What kind of open source intelligence have you done on this individual uh, to determine how risk uh, how risky this individual is? Okay. Fascinating. I mean, difficult problems. I still am haunted by your image of Mala by data out there on the on the black web. So I'm I'm gonna try to uh, I'm gonna try to sleep tonight. I'll probably change all my passwords as soon as I uh, hang up from you here. But uh, so, last question for you, Todd. What's a book or a play or a, a, a film or something that you've seen that you think's really good at crystallizing kind of what the current threats are, 
what companies can do about it, what individuals can do about it. Obviously, other than your excellent book, what what is something else out there that people can can read? Or, uh, I'd look or, at a, or or watch. Uh, I would I would definitely uh, recommend uh, the Lazarus Heist. This is on uh, North Korea's hacking capabilities, and this goes over the history of North Korea's um, cr- cyber criminal uh, 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 departments that they have, and some and sh- what they've done in the last several years, and how successful they are. Uh, people think of North Korea as kind of a backward company, a backward country, but in terms of cyber capabilities, they are not. They're very very further ahead. Okay. Um, so I would definitely recommend that to just kind of give you an overview of you know, on a on a on a nation state type level what's what's happening there. Sounds fascinating. Just out of curiosity, I'm sure it's probably covered in the book. Where does that expertise come from? Is it is this all? How, how do they? How do the North Koreans get really good at this? They're able to uh, have offices in China, so they have offices in China, and this is where they train their staff because they can't access the internet and tools they need in court in North Korea, but they can't access it within China. Okay, and this is where they have their training grounds, and the book kind of covers some of the things. And when you read about what they're doing in China, it's it's really surprising uh, that yeah. So this is this is their training ground. This is where they train. This is this is how they how they uh, where they run uh, on that. And I think, too, what I'll do after this podcast is I'm going to jump online and I'm going to do a little open source intelligence on you. And I'll send you a report of what I find about you, Matt. Uh, that, that's out. Oh, when, great. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Todd. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, no, no problem, buddy. <laughs> now, now, now I'll even sleep better. Now, now I know not only is my data out there, but Todd is doing investigations on me. Great. <laughs> All right. Todd Wade, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, uh, real pleasure, Matt. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.